Hi, my name is Queen Zoya Counts, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, Evil Lives Amongst Us, African American True Crime. Yes, I love true crime stories, but very seldom do I hear true crime stories about African Americans. So I created this podcast to share with my listeners about the true crimes that African Americans commit. So sit back, lend me your ears, and listen to some of the most horrendous crimes committed by African Americans. So today, I want to talk about Derek Todd Lee. When I saw Derek Todd's name, Derek Todd Lee's name, and my list of one of the African-American serial killers that I wanted to investigate or I wanted to research in order to talk about him on my podcast, I, like some of you, was unaware that he was known as the Baton Rouge serial killer. There is also a book out about him called Blood Bath, written by Susan D. Mustafa. And in this book, she also had several other people to help her out in this book. But in this book, She describes him as him being a father, a husband, a co-worker, and a killer. Derek Todd Lee was ultimately convicted of two savage murders and tied to at least seven more. From the slender trace of DNA that finally nabbed him to the courageous prosecutors who took him down in court. This is the shocking story of a homicidal maniac hiding in plain sight and an evil that could never be washed away. He took his time, he watched his victims, and he chose carefully. Then he struck, each attack more brutal than the last. By the time the detectives arrived, all they found were gruesome crime scenes of bloodied, brutalized bodies. For more than 10 years in South Louisiana, the killings went on, task forces were formed. The killer even spent time in jail. But that wouldn't stop the bloodshed. One victim was stabbed with a screwdriver 83 times. And also in this book, she has 16 pages of shocking photographs. So like I said, I was unaware that he was this popular. I just wanted to research African-Americans who had committed true crimes and Derek Todd Lee's name happened to be on my list. I'm keeping it real. So I am just going to dig into his life events, just dig into them. So I read, showed me as I researched that he was born November 5th, 1968 in St. Francisville, Louisiana, from age three 
to the time he was 13 years old, his mother had met some man who he called a stepfather. And this man was a police officer. And this man used to beat the pure tea shit out of him. And the mother never intervened. He had other brothers and sisters, but the mother never intervened. The mother never stepped in to stop him from being beaten. They said that he was retarded. He sucked his thumb. And the other kids in class, you know how kids do. They used to pick on him, call him pissy because he used to pee in his pants. They said that he would even call his teacher mama. They also said that he used to, he, you know, was a peeping Tom and that he used to peep in windows even when he was in elementary school. He tortured his dog and he even tortured the puppies. He hurt himself a lot, but they said he never had injuries to his head. By the time he turned 13, he got arrested for burglary and vandalizing a candy store. Even during that time when he was 13, he attacked a woman right in front of his mama because the woman had told his mama, you know your son was peeping at me. So he got mad because she told it and he decided to attack her. So this was the early beginnings of the things that was troubling him, what was going on in his life. When he was 16, in 1985, when he was 16 years old, he got arrested for second degree murder, but was released. He then set his own car on fire for the insurance money. When he was 19 in 1988, he was arrested for attempted burglary, but the charges were reduced to unauthorized entry. When he turned 20 years old, he married Jacqueline Sims in Solitude, Louisiana. He was trying to get a job because he wanted to take care of his family. So he did find a job, but he was getting jobs here and jobs there. It was hard for him to keep a job. So then he started harassing his mama, you know, telling her, you know, it's your fault. I can't keep a job. It's your fault. I'm going through this. It's your fault. I'm going through that. You used to let that man beat on me. You used to let that man do this to me. You used to let that man do that to me. So he had a lot of issues. He had a lot of anger issues. Then he got upset with his wife and he slapped her around, put his hands on her. She called the police, but then she also called her daddy. So when the daddy showed up, he threatened the daddy with a gun. The daddy called the police. They said, oh, he's just disturbing the peace. He ain't getting no jail time. Then he goes to this bar. Why at the bar? He's upset. He angry. Fist fight occurs. He's arrested. So now it's 1992 and he's 23 years old. He meets Connie Warner. Connie Warner, he killed her with a hammer. Zachary, L.A., Louisiana, after he raped her. 
her body was found in a vacant lot in Baton Rouge. Then he turned 24. He was arrested for burglary again and also for resisting arrest in Zachary. He then committed robbery and assault while waiting trial, attacked a teenage couple with a six-foot harvesting tool while they were parked. They just sitting somewhere chilling, probably doing what teenagers do, and then he attacks them with this harvesting tool. For that, he was sentenced to four years in prison, which included a previous burglary, but he only served two years. Then he was released from prison. So then he gets out. He's 26 years old. It's 1995. He moves to Lake Charles, Louisiana. Once again, he's back to peeping at people, back to being a peeping Tom. Then he gets arrested for robbing a Salvation Army clothes drop off. So he's hit. That means that he's done hit hard times. They're not having enough money. So I imagine he's got to move back with family. So he moves his family back to St. Francisville. While he's there, father-in-law dies. Now he's 27. The father-in-law dies because a plant that the father-in-law was working at, it exploded. So now his wife receives a $250,000 settlement. Uh-oh, they got money now. So you would think... Now they got this $250,000 settlement. Things are going to get back to normal. You know, he's going to change. I'm not going to say things are going to get back to normal, but his life is going to be just a little bit more easier for him. During that time, his wife bought a gun. A year go by. He turns 28. He gets arrested for DWI. Everything's good there. No one still has connected him to the body that was found in Baton Rouge. He decides he wants to go to truck driving school, so he gets his CDL license. He gets a job driving for the Louisiana Ready Mix. He's a truck driver. You know, he's doing his thing. He's he's enrolled in the, the Diesel Driving Academy in Baton Rouge. And he's, you know, he's doing okay with this job. He's driving a semi-truck. But then he starts doing crazy things. Like, he try, he ran over his co- co-worker's car with the truck. So then they demoted him down to just driving cement trucks. Okay? So all of these different things is going on. Then he got stopped by the Zachary police because he was peeping and looking in on somebody again. But they didn't charge him because they didn't have a positive witness ID for him. So then at work, they're coming down on him because he's getting disciplined. So then he gets mad. And then Eugenie Boy Fontaine is murdered and Baton Rouge, that's the second person that he may have murdered, okay? So after that, he has to go to court again. So then he's 29 years old, it's 1998, January 14th, he goes to court. He pleads guilty to six counts of peeping toms, and he's sentenced to two years probation, but he has to go seek some mental help.
He's got to go to some psychological testing. He attends two therapy sessions with Dr. Robert Snyder. And it's called a good verbal therapy participant because he's just talking and he's letting them know this is what's going on with him. And a letter is sent to the courtroom. So they say, okay, he's doing good. Now, that was in January, February. All of this is going on. But right when he gets that court letter, gets to court, March 1st, 1999, I mean, 1998, Michelle Chapman identifies him in a photo lineup because he done attacked and raped this woman in a cemetery. Not only that, he gets fired from the Louisiana Ready Mix place for insubordination for causing two accidents in one week. He gets mad. Now this has happened. Now when he gets fired, it's now April. The next month, he gets fired. So then after that, on the 16th, he gets fired. And then on April 18th, he goes and finds his victim, rapes, beats this person to death in Zachary, Louisiana. Mm, 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 mm. On the 19th, they pick him up and he's interrogated in this person's death. And then they confiscate a pair of his pants at his home. Leroy Shorts, a friend, told James Odom, another friend, that Derek Lee killed Randy. So he got two friends. This is on the 20th. He got two friends that he know who go and tell, you know, that one of them go and tell one, hey, you know, Derek Lee, he killed Randy. And then this one say, hey, I'm going to the police. So the police begin paying Leroy to become an informant. So this happens this is going on. So now he's 30 years old, December 1st, and he meets Cassandra Green. Oh, Cassandra Green. She's like the most finest thing he had ever seen. Now, he's still married, but he meets Cassandra, and they begin to have a relationship. But he is still under surveillance for killing Randy. Then he meets Colette Walker, but he don't get into a relationship with Colette. No, Derek starts stalking her, goes into an apartment, try to make her date him, but she don't want to date him. But her neighbor, Diane Holloway, she decides she's going to file a complaint against Derek. And guess what? The police never pursued it. Then... Lee is caught by Walker's son because he's still playing peeping Tom, peeping into the apartment. A warrant is then issued for his arrest for stalking and unlawful entry. Then he's arrested and then he's bailed out of jail. He goes to court on my birthday, December 17, 1999. He's 31 years old and he is sentenced to six months in jail and two years probation.
So then Cassandra Green, she done broke up with him because he done got locked up. And she probably was like, um, you know what? I ain't about to hold you down while you are in court. She was like, nah, uh-uh, nah, player. It ain't going down like that, player. Nah, nah, nah. I ain't about to hold no man down while he in jail. So he starts threatening her because she don't want to hold him down. So she go to court. Now, this is January 2000 because he got out in December. So she go to court and get a protective order for him. This is on the 19th, 1-19-2000. On 1-22-2000, he follows her to a club, beats the crap out of her. She probably in there doing her little thing, wait for her to get out, beat the shit out of her. But Cassandra, she don't want to testify. She refuses to testify. So by her not testifying against him, they still sent him to jail because, you know, he has this criminal record. So he's sentenced to one year in jail. On January 1st, 2001, he's released from jail. Now he's 32. So he know he got to get a job. He began looking for work. He gets hired at the Dow Chemical Plant in Bruce Lee, Louisiana. So you know something wrong with him, with his mind, or he has this passion or this, this fetish because he starts looking for Colette Walker again. This time... He done bought him a Hyundai Accent with his wife. He done reunited. Now, Green done took him back. Green took him back. She done took him back. He won't even, he won't even out of jail a good three months. And she took him back. But in September of the same year, he beat his wife up again and got arrested. When that happened, he stopped showing up for work. But then guess what happened? The wife, she dropped the charges. And this was in 2001. She dropped the charges. Because he was arrested for battery against the wife, but the charges got dismissed. charges I don't understand because he was accused of attempted first-degree murder after severely kicking and stomping his girlfriend Cassandra Green at a bar after an argument and then while trying to flee from the police following the incident he allegedly tried to run over the sheriff's deputy with a car and he was sentenced for two years, but he only did a year. I don't understand. So then the charges were dismissed. Mm. This is crazy. 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 Anyway, he started working at Dow again. 
Uh, he's probably sweet talk him. This was December 1st, 2001. They hired him back. Then November, January 11th of 2002, they laid him off. He got mad because they laid him off and he found Geraldine DeSado beat and stabbed her in 2002. Then he got a job working for Merritt, got laid off, filed and received unemployment. Then he started working job at Exxon Mobil plant in Baton Rouge. This is in 2002. So he kept getting jobs. Now he's working at Exxon Mobil plant in Baton Rouge. While working there, he got the job in June. By July, he had beaten, strangled, and attempted to rape Diane Alexander, but she survived. Now, Diane survived, and when Diane survived, her son found her, and she was able to give them a sketch of what he looked like. So she survived. Good for her. Cause she, cause when he tried to strangle her, he tried to strangle her with a cord from the phone and she put her hand between the cord and her neck and it didn't happen. So she's, she survived. She survived. Colette Walker called the tax force to provide Lee's name and background as a suspect because something ain't going on here. Some, something don't seem right, and she got a funny feeling that it was him, so she's trying to help out too. Then, November 21st, right after his birthday, 2002, he raped and beat to death Danae Cologne with a tree branch in Lafayette, Louisiana. December 25th, 2002, Marianne Fowler disappeared in Port Allen, Louisiana. Then he switched to start working the night shift. Then, March 3rd, he killed Carrie Lynn Yoder in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. This is in 2003. He left work at the end of February, returned on March 6th to pick up his last paycheck, met a woman at a shopping mall, and drove her home. He returned several times to masturbate while he watched her. And sat in his truck outside her house when she was not home. Now, during this time, the police started understanding that there was a serial killer because all of these women were being found dead. But one thing that they were doing was that they were collecting the DNA. And they was finding that the methods of the death and the DNA was starting to match somewhat. So they began to think that it was a white man committing the serial committing these murders a serial killer a white man was a security a serial killer riding around in a white pickup truck they didn't even think that it could have been a african-american 
not yet. So here they are thinking that it's a white man doing all of these killings. And it's not. It's him. African American. Because public hysteria had created many rumors and false suspect reports in the area. Previously, the suspect was believed to be a white man driving a white pickup truck. Further new evidence then pointed to an African-American man from the Bridge area driving a gold 1997 Mitsubishi Mirage, who was also wanted in connection with an attempted rape. That was who had done it. Hmm. Then, when they got the DNA and they realized the DNA could possibly belong to an African-American, that's when they said, I believe the serial killer is a black man. Yeah. So then Lee left the state by Greyhound in 2003. He leaves the state. And he goes down and flees, goes to Atlanta. He moves his family, says goodbye to his family, tells his family he's moving to Detroit with relatives and everything. But his DNA was a match to all of the serial killings. Cassandra Green's home was being searched as it was being searched. Lee called her on the phone, and the caller ID placed him right in Atlanta. A tip led police to Lee's location in Atlanta, and he was arrested. Lee's own son identified boots that linked him to the crime. Mm, 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 mm. But the case that real that where he killed the person with the screwdriver, that was the case that really stuck out with people. That was the case that really made people start suspecting him. And that was with Charlotte Murray Pace. That was the case that really stuck out because of how her murder took place, her roommates, and how her roommates found her dead. And from how the apartment looked and how everything looked in the house, you could tell that she had struggled with him, that she had fought with him for her life. She fought. She fought really hard to survive. She fought hard. She fought hard to stay alive. She really did. She really did. And that is how... Um, you know, that is how they were able to catch up with him and catch him because of what they found. Because when I was going over the reports, 
They said that she was found nude, lying on the floor between the bedroom door and the bed. Blood was all over the room. The furniture, the bedspread was soaked. The kitchen, the hallway. There were small holes in her chest, her stomach, her throat was cut open. You know, um, you could see where, um, like, um, they took samples of DNA from everywhere around the house, all over the place. And then they actually did like a, a sexual rape kit to see if she had been raped. They are saying that they found like a clothing iron in the bedroom and four pieces of plastic, two black and two blue, and it was close to her face. There was um, holes in her rib cage and her left buttock. Her, um, they took swabs from her breasts and her nipples. So from where the blood was located and from her body, you could tell that she was fighting, like she would run, like she was moving and she was fighting and she really was fighting for her life. God rest her soul. Bless her soul. May her soul find peace. They were saying that the pattern of the stab wounds were present from a flat bladed screwdriver and one was from a knife and there was injuries that was done to her skull and blunt trauma, you know, to her frontal bones and all kinds of things that he did to her and raped her. And with these women, there was no signs of forced entry you know, prior to that. We're not even going to go back into the murders that he committed in 1998, but the ones that he committed, you know, that they had the evidence on, like they even found blouses and, and, and shorts and purse and cell phones that was missing. They found these things on, on his kitchen table and all, you know, Areas where you wouldn't think like clump of hair and shit and stuff like that. They was getting the DNA out of everything. But Alexander, she fought for her life. She fought for her life. Then you had Pamela Kinnamore. She was a, a antique shop owner. She was reported missing from her home. Three days after Alexander was attacked after Diana, Diana had got attacked. So he was still, so it was between seven to 10 murders. She was strangled, um, cuts through her skin, through her windpipe, her larynx, the open of her airway, her carotid artery, her jugular veins. She had been raped. All of these different things that this man was doing. And the last woman that he killed, Carrie Yoder, she was 26 years old. They say that he entered the residence and that her boyfriend went to her house, went through a window. He saw her broken necklace, a small amount of blood on her purse, but he didn't see a struggle. And they finally found her body which was buried or, or partially submerged at Whiskey Bay, not far from where they found Kenamore's body. And it was determined that she had been raped, strangled, beaten, and stomped 
did a sexual kit. Once again, here we go with the DNA. Here we go with the DNA. And so they saying that on March 31st, the district court ruled the murders of Gina, Pamela, Tanisha, Carrie, attempted rape, and murder of Diana were admissible. The other crimes that he committed, they couldn't proceed with those. Like they didn't have enough evidence. They didn't have enough evidence to convict him of those other crimes, even though he did those crimes. But they said they didn't have enough evidence to um, convict him of those crimes. And he was even getting upset with his public defendant because he felt like he needed a whole new lawyer because he felt like his lawyer was not defending him and he did not want his lawyer to be trying to use him for publicity. So he was like, I want another lawyer, all kinds of stuff that he was doing because he just did not want, you know, he just felt like he wasn't getting a fair deal they was even they was even talking about how um how his 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 IQ was really low and he was crazy and all this other kind of stuff. Okay, he might have been crazy. He might have played like he was crazy, but he knew what he was doing when he murdered those women. He knew what he was doing when he was peeping peeping in those women in those women houses. So he ended up getting the death penalty, but that, that is not what killed him. The death penalty did not kill him. I wish the death penalty would have killed him, but the death penalty did not kill him. He had a heart attack. That is what killed him. He died of a heart attack. And even a heart attack was not good enough for him. Thank you. My name is Queen Zawaya Counts. I'm gonna tell all of y'all, watch where you are going. I don't care if you, whatever you want to call yourself, I'm not going to get all into that, but whatever it is that you want to call yourself, stay protected out there in the world. There are some weirdos out there. Don't matter what color you are, stay protected and be safe. Peace.